turn in God's holy word to 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we continue our study there, coming to the last verses of the chapter. Past couple times we've looked at the qualifications for the elder and then for the deacon. Now verses 14 through 16 are the sermon text, but we read the whole chapter once more. First Timothy chapter 3, it's one of the so-called pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, written to Pastor Timothy and then to Pastor Titus by the Apostle Paul, instructing them as they care for churches. Timothy is ministering in Ephesus. We have also the letter of the Ephesians, or to the Ephesians, that Paul had written uh, presumably earlier to the church in Ephesus. And now he writes to Timothy, but it's kind of an open letter And the Ephesians are hearing these words too. 1 Timothy 3 verse 1. This is a faithful saying if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, deacons must be reverent. Not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own household houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. And here's our sermon text, verses 14 through 16. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write, so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. God's holy word. Let's ask for his help. Our Father in heaven, it is our privilege to sit beneath your word on this Lord's Day. In a swirling world of uncertainty, we come to the one thing that we can forever trust. And we pray that you would write your word upon our hearts today. And we pray, Lord, for all those who hear your word across the globe today, that your people be strengthened, that those who don't know you would be converted. And we lift up special prayers, Lord, today for friends and for neighbors and coworkers, 
and especially for loved ones, as we pray, Lord, that you would seek each one by your gospel. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Maybe you've heard it said before, maybe you've gotten the message that I should be home in time, but just in case, would you check the oven? It's the kind of thing mom or one's wife might say sometime. I'm, I'm planning to be home, I should be home, but, but just in case, would you check on that lasagna? Because we wouldn't want to burn it, we wouldn't want the house to burn down. Paul is not concerned about lasagna here, and he's not concerned about the house, not our house. But he is telling Timothy, I'm hoping to be there very soon, and I myself will direct things in the Ephesian congregation. But in case I'm delayed, another imprisonment, another shipwreck, here's what you need to know. Here's how it has to go in the church. Paul's been telling Timothy lots of instructions about true doctrine, about the roles of men and women, about the necessity of prayer in the church, about who may serve as elders and who may serve as deacons. And there's an urgency here to what Paul is saying because because it's God's house. The apostle knows that the house gets burned down sometimes or nearly, or more often it simply decays and corrupts. And when these things happen, when God's organization and God's truth and God's house rules are not followed, then God is not honored and the the members of the household are not blessed and the gospel is not adorned before the watching world. And so Timothy needed clear instructions. And Timothy needs to take this seriously. If you've ever borrowed someone's house... You seek to take care of it. If it's a very nice house, you feel quite responsible. When I was in high school, I picked up a part-time job doing janitorial duty, and and I found out that my assignment would be a bank in town here. And I was to show up the first day with a notebook and follow the owner of the janitorial business around, why he cleaned and why he talked, and I was to write down what he said and what he did. And I wasn't too excited about cleaning, but I did feel a little bit honored that I was going to clean a bank. Important place. Lots of money there. How you lock and unlock doors and set the alarm matters. But you see, God is telling Timothy something far more is at stake. This isn't simply a house or a bank. It's the church of the living God. Something significant has been deposited in her. And she has a great stewardship. Her office bearers, her elders and deacons, and the whole congregation... And that's what we want to consider this morning, the weight of this stewardship. As God answers here, two questions for us. Number one, what is the church? And number two, what has he deposited in her? What is the church, number one? And number two, what great riches has God deposited in his church? Well, as we read this, it would not be hard to imagine that Timothy might have grown a little disillusioned with his job assignment. It must have been exciting at first. He's going to be the pastor in Ephesus, but he's away from his family. He's absent his father in the faith, the Apostle Paul, and dealing with these false teachers and disputers may have grown old, and maybe it seemed to Timothy after a while that this wasn't so glamorous an assignment as he had anticipated. I know it goes that way for missionaries sometimes. Great dreams of going to the mission field, all this preparation, but when they arrive, they soon discover it's mostly a lot of work and inconvenience. The conversions maybe don't come rolling in. It's also that way for us in the church, isn't it? 
Maybe you've served somewhere in the church in the past, but you're not so excited anymore. Maybe you served in your youth, but now you've grown older and cynical. Nobody changes. Nothing happens. Why bother? Maybe we used to be urgent and praying. And now we think, you know, I tried that a lot. And we forget what the church is. Paul has just given the qualifications for elders and deacons. And no sooner has he done that than he reminds them what the church is. Three phrases, three titles. Number one, it's the house of God. Verse 15, you need to know how to conduct yourself in the house of God. God created the church. God formed the church. God rules the church. And above all, God owns the church. It's his house. Some translate it as household, which is a a possible translation. I think in this case, house is probably better, but it's not unrelated to household because The house of God is the household. We, God's people, his children adopted by grace, we are the house and the household of God, right? Paul had written in Ephesians chapter 2 that you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. An extraordinary thing. He says, you are God's temple, you are God's house where the living God dwells by his Spirit. And so you understand the weight here of it all and the weight of serving as an office bear. Office bears are stewards of the house. They've been given the keys, right? They've been given the the task to oversee and to serve and to manage so it all goes well. Remember in Luke uh, chapter 12, Jesus told his apostles this this idea of, of, of stewards or managers. Their master goes away and they're in charge of, of his whole house. And if he comes back and he finds they've gotten drunk and start beating the other servants, then then there's going to be wrath. But if he comes back and find out they've been wise and faithful stewards, then he'll exalt them and put them in charge of everything he has. Maybe some of you have been managers of a business or a company. Maybe you've cared for someone's farm. And you are willing because of the weight of responsibility to put in overtime, to take phone calls at home and so forth. But how much more when it's God's house? It's God's house. We need to keep telling ourselves that. The master's going to come back and see if we've properly cared for God's house. It's very important to him. And so the apostle had said with regard to both elder and deacon, right? If a man doesn't know how to rule his own house, how is he going to take care of, of the church of God? It's not the office bearer's house, not the elder's house, it's not the minister's house, it's not the deacon's house. They don't get to just do whatever they want and make up the rules. It's God's house. It's also not the congregation's house. So that it's not that the office bearers are representatives of the people and whatever the people want, they have to do. No, the people shouldn't want them to do anything other than what God wants them to do. Right? Right? We should want our office bearers to serve not according to their own desires, but according to their master's word. And that should be our prayer and our encouragement for present and for future office bearers. We shouldn't try to sway their decisions according to our mere preferences. But we should pray that they disregard our mere preferences to do what the king of kings wants. It's his house. 
But secondly, Paul calls it the church of the living God. It's not just the house of God, but the church of the living God. Now, in the Old Testament, a number of times God contrasts himself to the pagan idols by speaking of their dead idols idols, and calling himself the living God. And you have an instance of that in Jeremiah 10, where the Lord speaks of the futility of the nations who cut down a tree and they drag it in and they carve it up and they decorate it with gold and then they nail it down so it won't tip over. These kinds of gods cannot speak, God says. They have to be carried And they are nothing to fear because they can't do any evil and they can't do any good. But then Jeremiah 10 says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. And his wrath, at his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and under the heavens. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom and has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. The gods who haven't made this world will perish. The living God reigns forever. And Psalm 115 says of these idol gods that have eyes that don't see and and ears that don't hear, that those who make them and those who worship them become like them, which is that remarkable revelation in Scripture that you become like the thing you worship. And if you worship dead gods, then you are lifeless. Now, this must have been a profoundly heartening word for the Ephesians to hear when Paul says that you are the church of the living God. Because as the Ephesians sat in their worship service, maybe like we are this morning, they worshipped in the shadow of the temple of Diana or Artemis. Remember that? The The temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People came from from all over the world to to see this edifice. It It was magnificent. It was glorious. It was quite a sight to behold. And it was lifeless. People flooded into the temple with all the kinds of needs that we have today. Guilty consciences and struggling relationships and Worries about jobs and finances and how to care for the kids and discouragements and depressions and health issues and fears that paralyze and rumors of war. And and as they came into the temple of Diana, this magnificent structure, what did they find to help them? A God who had ears but couldn't hear their prayers. A God who had eyes but couldn't see their need. A God who had hands but couldn't lift a finger to serve them. A God with no heart. But we are the church of the living God. The one true and real God who lives and who gives life. That's our comfort. I saw another article this week about the opioid crisis. In America, hard stories about those who succumb to drug addictions. And it goes on and on, doesn't it? We live in a world that has no life in itself. What do we have as the church that that we can tell the world about? We are all addicts by nature, enslaved to sin, 
enslaved to anything apart from Christ, right? Whatever we start doing, we become enslaved to, whether it's video games or work or moral images or people are addicted to relationships, to the love of their children, right? Everything, anything addicts us apart from Jesus Christ. Sin is entrapping, and even good things become our idols that entrap us. But remember what Paul said to Thessalonians? As he describes their conversion in 1 Thessalonians 1, he says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What a glorious transformation. You've turned from, from dead idols to the living God. It's made all the difference in your world through the resurrection of Jesus, who is dead but who now lives. Easter is not a a one-day-a-year celebration. Easter is a way of life. It's fellowship with the living God through the living Christ. The Savior who died for our sins and arose triumphant, never to die again, but to impart to us fellowship with the living God. Remember who you are, Timothy. Remember who you are, Ephesian elders and deacons. Remember who you are, Ephesian congregation. You are the house of God, the church of the living God. And then he says, the pillar and ground of the truth, that third title. What a glorious title, the pillar and ground of the truth. God's truth is his revelation of himself and of his gospel. It's greater than all the wisdom of men, all the philosophies, all the books that have been written. God's truth. Now the second word, ground, there means a buttress or something that stabilizes, supports. And the first word, pillar, well, that's a column, right, that holds up a roof. How is the church, the pillar, and the buttress... Of truth. Well, it's certainly not the case that the truth depends on the church or it will collapse. The church did not invent the truth, but the truth gave birth to the church. The truth came first because God is before the church, and the truth is God's truth, and He lives forever. And if that seems obvious, it's actually important to grasp. Because otherwise you might be enticed by others who say that the truth is dependent upon the church. I remember reading a book by a man who had been a Protestant Christian and became Roman Catholic. And he talked about how refreshingly stabilizing it was to become Roman Catholic. Because as a Protestant, there's so many denominations. And there's so many interpretations of the word. And there's so many churches that change their theology with whatever new pastor they've got. But to go back to Rome, there was tradition. There were the church councils. There was an interpreter, an official interpreter of the word. Philip Graham, in his commentary, writes, Roman Catholic theologians often use this verse, the pillar and ground of the truth. They use this verse to argue against the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone. See, they say, the church is the foundation of the truth. Therefore, scripture is not the only rule of faith and practice. As Protestants say, 
we must obey church tradition as well as the Bible. The truth rests upon the church and not the other way around. See the problem here. And why it's enticing for many people to want to think that the church wrote the Bible. The church gave birth to the Bible. The church is the only one who interprets the Bible. Our faith is in the church. But Paul had written to the Ephesians in chapter 2, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The temple is built on the prophetic and apostolic word of the Lord Jesus and not the other way around. So we confess in the Belgian Confession that we believe the books of the Bible not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but above all because the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from God. And in Article 7, we consider no human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, equal to the divine writings, nor may we put custom, nor the majority, nor age, nor the passage of time or persons, nor councils, nor decrees, or official decisions above the truth of God. For all human beings are liars by nature and more vain than vanity itself. If we would put our trust in the church, then we're back to worshiping idols. Our confidence is the word. But if all that's said then, that, that the word is the foundation of the church, then what is Paul saying when he says that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth? Well, he's not talking about the essence of it, but about the activity of it. The church is not the pillar of truth in terms of essence. It doesn't hold up the word or else the word wouldn't be true. But the church is the pillar of the truth in terms of our mission activity. She used to defend the truth and proclaim the truth and teach the truth to the world. See, he's talking specifically here about the ministry of the word. Church is called to receive that word from God and to study that word from God and to guard it then from heretics. And she's called to announce that word and preach that word and teach that word in this world. She's to preserve the good deposit and proclaim it. And the church lifts it up for all to see. As one writer puts it, the purpose of pillars is not only to hold the roof firm, but to thrust it high so that it can be clearly seen even from a distance. And he notes that the Ephesians had a vivid illustration of this in that temple of Diana with its 127 ionic columns shooting 60 feet up in the air to support a giant shining marble roof for all to see. Those pillars thrusted up that all could see. There's the glorious temple of Diana. Church is called to thrust the truth of God up in a dark and dying world where there is no life and to say, Here is the Word, here is the Savior. Let us proclaim to you His truth. John Calvin writes, She, the church, is called the pillar of truth because the office of administering doctrine or teaching which God hath placed in her hands is the only instrument of preserving the truth that it may not perish from the remembrance of men. And he writes, the church maintains the truth because by preaching the church proclaims it, because she keeps it pure and entire, 
because she transmits it to posterity. And if the instruction of the gospel be not proclaimed, if there are no godly ministers who by their preaching rescue truth from darkness and forgetfulness, then instantly falsehoods, errors, deceptions, superstitions, and every kind of corruption will reign. In short, silence in the church is the banishment and crushing of the truth. Church must preach the word. Big news this week. Elon Musk buys Twitter. And some hate the idea and some love the idea, but all seem convinced that Twitter matters. Marketplace of ideas, the town square. Whatever we think about social media. And however much good the church has found in making use of social media, it should always be clear in our mind that the big news every week is not Twitter or Facebook or anything else, but our text, that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. To the church is given the task to disseminate in a dark world the only word that saves, the only truth there is. Praise the Lord for this high honor he's given to us. And this is our task, brothers and sisters. We live in a mixed-up world, and it seems more mixed up all the time. Immoral sexual relationships, strange ideas about sex and gender, constant love of possessions, fears of all kinds of things except no fear of God. Where can the world find the truth if the church doesn't stand as a pillar and lift this word up? If we're not in the business of preaching it and proclaiming it and sending out those who will. This honor has been bestowed upon no other institution in the world but the church. We as a congregation are part of this. A pillar of the truth. But our service to the Lord in this capacity depends upon our own love for the truth, doesn't it? It depends upon having office bearers who know the word and who rule by the word. It depends upon having a congregation who's hungry for the word and says, when will be preached again that I can hear it? I need the truth. But if instead we're slow to come for the preaching... Our elders have to urge us. We're slow to read the word in our homes. It sits there getting dusty. We're slow to study it. We think we have enough of it already. Then how can we fulfill our calling? Where will our urgency and our desire be? What a disservice to the glory of God and a disservice to our neighbor. The world doesn't know the truth, and we do. This is the high honor God has given us. He says, I am proclaiming to you that you are the house of God and you are the church, the called out ones of the living God. I dwell among you and I have given to you this glorious assignment in the world in the midst of all the confusion and darkness and deadness of soul. You possess the word of life. Oh, don't we need to tell ourselves that? Because which one of us hasn't gotten careless? 
Which one of us hasn't lost our zeal at times? Which one of us hasn't grown cold to the whole cause? And we need to pray the Holy Spirit will come and wake us up. He give us a love for the truth and a love to be shaped by that truth. How will we with any desire proclaim the truth if we're not walking in it? Where will our zeal for the word be if we're if we're looking at immoral images and those are ruling our life, if we're engaging in moral relationships, if we've developed a love for money, if we're not being faithful as a husband or wife to care for our household, if we're not living a life that's marked by the kind of kindness and love that Paul speaks of, but instead we are double-tongued or we are quickly angry, if we're not submissive to the word then we surely won't be energetic to tell anybody else what the word says. Brothers and sisters, we have a glorious calling in this world. The pillar of the truth in this world. May God awaken us. May we remind each other as we grow discouraged or we think, you know, not much is happening. May we live by faith and say, it doesn't matter doesn't matter how it looks at the moment. We know this from the scriptures, that the church is the pillar of the truth. But what is that truth that's deposited among her? Let's consider that secondly this morning. Verse 16, you could preach, I suppose, 100 sermons on the verse, or maybe you could try to summarize it in five minutes, and we'll try to do something closer to the latter. What truth is deposited in her? The apostle writes, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. That's the mystery of godliness. Mystery doesn't mean some, like a mystery novel. It means something we didn't know by our own reasoning, but it's been revealed to us by God. And that thing revealed to us by God, the mystery, is a mystery of of godliness or devotion. It's the thing that accounts for our commitment to Christ and the way, the reason that we're trying to live pure and holy lives. And what is that mystery? Well, six lines. Scholars debate how we should read these six lines, how they should be arranged or what. I think that we should see them probably as three couplets or three pairs The first two lines speak of what Christ accomplished. The second two lines make known to us or uh, or show how, how what Christ did was made known. And the third two lines show that truth being received and believed. So first of all, Christ's accomplishment. Christ was manifested in the flesh and justified in the spirit. I think it refers to the incarnation and to the resurrection The Son of God came down from heaven. This is the glorious mystery of godliness, that God should become a man, that the the one who had the joys and the glories of heaven should stoop down to become one with us in humanity, who should take up a a sin-weakened human nature, who should subject himself to all the miseries of this broken world so he could come and die in our place. That is the glorious mystery of godliness. But the Savior who was rejected by men not recognized, was justified in the Spirit, justified by the Spirit. He was vindicated as resurrection. 
the spirit that was upon him at his baptism, the spirit that filled him so he could drive out demons and heal the dead, is the spirit that raised him from the dead and declared this is the Son of God. Romans 1 verse 4, that Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That's Christ's great accomplishment. He is the victor over sin and death and hell. He is life for a dead world. But then the next two lines show Christ's work made known, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles. The angels were present at his birth. They ministered to him in the garden, in the wilderness with temptation. But they were also the first witnesses of his resurrection, weren't they? They were at the empty tomb. William Hendrickson writes it quite nicely. He says, while the eyes of men and women, too, were beclouded by the midst of little faith, angels saw him clearly. They knew him as their glorious Lord. So he was seen by angels when he was preached among the Gentiles. The greatest event in the history of the world is made known now to the world. Jesus is publicly and universally announced. He's lifted up. The word goes out that there's been a glorious victory. God has entered into human history and human nature. He has died for sinners. He has opened a way into the heavens. That news now is known by angels and preached throughout the world. And then that work of Christ accomplished, that work of Christ made known, is thirdly a work of Christ received. Last two lines, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Believed on in the world. Isn't this the wonder today that Jesus Christ is being embraced the world over? That at Pentecost the word begins to go out and the spirit with the word and dead idol worshipers turn from their idols to the true and living God and find fellowship with God through Christ. Find their greatest joy in the world to know the Lord, to be forgiven of their sins. And then it ends with received up in glory. I think it's referring to the ascension. Same word that's used in a couple of the ascension revelations. He was received up, taken up in glory. Hendrickson writes again, While the echo of men's voices, crucify, crucify, had scarcely died, Heaven opened wide its portals, and upon receiving back its victorious king, resounded with the echoes of the jubilant anthem sung by ten thousand times ten thousands, and thousands of thousands, worthy is the Lamb. Truly, he was taken up in glory. Do you see what the apostle has done here now? Some wonder if this was an early Christian creed or a hymn or something. We don't know. It's written somewhat poetically, and that's why they, they ponder those things. But, but do you see what he's done here? He's, he, he's taken us from the depths to the heights, right? He's talked about the earth and about flesh and about Gentiles, and he's talked about angels and the high heavens, and he's proclaiming to the church that your Christ is cosmic in importance. The whole universe bows at his feet. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He stooped down to come and die for sinners, and he is lifted to the highest heights and crowned Lord over all. And do you see who you are then? Do you see why it matters how you take care of the church? Do you see why it matters how you act as custodian of this house? Because it's the house of God. 
not the building. We the people are the house of God, the church of the living God, and the pillar of the truth. It is a truth that causes angels to tremble and shout for joy. And if the holy beings above are awed by the glory and accomplishment of this Christ, then shouldn't we be, since we are the recipients of this salvation? What a message we have for the world, brothers and sisters. What a message. God manifested in the flesh, dying for sinners, taken up to glory, sitting upon the throne. If this morning you've forgotten who you are, if this morning you've lost your zeal for the cause of Christ or for his church, if this morning you think service in the church is kind of something you did once, but maybe not too much more, then let God bring you back to the reality. Though the church on the outside often doesn't appear to be all that great, right? It's made up of people like us. The church, by God's gracious gift, is the greatest thing in all of the world. The dwelling place of God and the instrument of proclaiming to all men that Jesus died, arose, and is seated in glory. We've never met the Apostle Paul. We have no thoughts that he's going to come and visit us here to set things straight. But God has written his word and preserved it. So we might hear the same message that Timothy and the Ephesians needed to hear. To be reminded who we are. And how we must live in God's house. Amen. Let's pray together. O gracious God in heaven, we confess, we forget, we grow careless. O Lord, it often doesn't appear to be much. It's marred by our sin, our weakness. But Lord, let us believe what you have spoken about your church, and so let us live with earnest prayer, with zeal, with faithful service, and with hope that you will indeed call forth all those whom you please through the ministry and the mission of your church. We thank you, Lord, for the place you've given us, that we may dwell with God. We pray that we'd be glad to exalt the name of our Savior by standing tall as pillars to lift high the truth. In Jesus' name we pray, God, hear our prayer and give us that help. Amen.